Chapter Eleven of the Ordeal of Mark Twain by Van Wyck Brooks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Chapter Eleven, Mustered Out. A man who awoke too early in the darkness, while the others were all still asleep. Dmitri Merzhkovsky. And so we come to Mark Twain's last phase, to that hour when outwardly liberated at last from the bonds and the taboos that have thwarted him and distorted him he turns and rends the world in the bitterness of his defeat three score years and ten he said in that famous seventieth birthday speech it is the scriptural statute of limitations after that you owe no active duties for you the strenuous life is over you are a time-expired man to use kipling's military phrase you have served your term well or less well and you are mustered out what a conception of the literary career you see how he looks back upon his life a pilot in those days he had written in life on the mississippi was the only unfettered and entirely independent human being that lived in the earth writers of all kinds are manacled servants of the public we write frankly and fearlessly but then we modify before we print in truth every man and woman and child has a master and worries and frets in servitude but in the day i write of the mississippi pilot had none no wonder he had loved that earlier career in which for once and once only he had enjoyed the indispensable condition of the creative life as for the life of literature it had been for him and he assumed that it was for all a life of moral slavery we write frankly and fearlessly but then we modify before we print shades of tolstoy and thomas carlyle of nietzsche and ibsen and whitman did you ever hear such words on the lips of a famous confrere you whose opinions were always unpopular did you ever once in the angelic naivete of your souls conceive the quaint idea of modifying a thought or a phrase because it annoyed some rich business man some influential priest some foolish woman what were their flagellations their gross and petty punishments to you thrice armored in the inviolate immaterial aura of your own ingenuous truthfulness the rapt contemplation of your noble dreams look with pity then out of your immortal calm upon this poor frustrated child whom nature had destined to become your peer and who a swan born among geese never even found out what a swan was and had to live the goose's life himself yes it is true that mark twain had never so much as imagined the normal existence of the artist of the writer who writes to please himself and by so doing brings eternal joy to the best of humanity to whom old age 
far from being a release from irksome duties, brings only, amid faltering forces, a fresh challenge to the pursuit of the visions and the hopes of youth. You are a time-expired man, to use Kipling's military phrase. You have served your term. It is in the language of the barracks, of the prison, of an alien discipline at last escaped that Mark Twain thinks of the writer's life, and you are mustered out. His first breathless thought was to tell the truth at last. Seventy years, he said again, is the time of life when you arrive at a new and awful dignity, when you may throw aside the decent reserves which have oppressed you for a generation, and stand unafraid and unabashed upon your seven-terraced summit, and look down and teach unrebuked. Huck Finn escaping from an unusually long and disagreeable session with Aunt Polly. That is the posture of Mark Twain, seventy years young, in this moment of release, of relief, of an abandon which, with time, has become filled with sober thoughts. To teach, unrebuked, unabashed, unafraid. Mr. Howells, referring to this period, speaks of a constant growth in the direction of something like recognized authority in matters of public import. Mark Twain was indeed accepted as a sort of national sage. But how is it possible for anyone who reads his speeches now, removed from that magnetic presence of his, to feel that he played this role in any distinguished way? Was he really the seer, the clairvoyant public counselor? He had learned to look with a certain perspective upon what he came to call this great, big, ignorant nation. The habitude of such power as he possessed, such experience of the world as he had had, and they were great in their way, showed him how absurd it was to spread the eagle any longer. There is something decidedly fresh and strong about those speeches still. He scouted the fatuous nonsense about American ideals, that becomes more and more vocal the more closely the one American ideal of all the people approaches the vanishing point. Good, sharp, honest advice he offered in abundance upon the primitive decencies of citizenship in this America, the refuge of the oppressed from everywhere, who can pay fifty dollars admission, any one except a Chinaman. Was he not courageous indeed, this general spokesman of the epoch of Bishop Potter and Mrs. Potter Palmer? He who said, Do right, and you will be conspicuous, was the first to realize that his courage was of the sort that costs one little. That passion for the limelight, that inordinate desire for approval, was a sufficient earnest that he could not, even if he had so desired, do anything essentially unpopular. It was no accident, therefore, that his mind was always drifting back to that famous watermelon story which tens of thousands of living Americans have heard him tell. It appears three times in his published speeches. He told how, as a boy, he had stolen a watermelon and 
having opened it and found it green returned it to the farmer with a lecture on honesty whereupon he was rewarded with the gift of another watermelon that was ripe it was the symbol of his own career for his courage and he frankly admitted it had always been the sort of courage he described in his story of luck tell the truth in short he could not his life had given him so little truth to tell his seventieth birthday had left him free to speak out and yet just as he played safe as a public sage so also he continued to play safe as a writer am i honest he wrote in that same seventy-first year to twichell i give you my word of honor privately i am not for seven years i have suppressed a book which my conscience tells me i ought to publish i hold it a duty to publish it there are other difficult duties which i am equal to but i am not equal to that one it was his bible what is man which as he had said some years before mrs clemens loathes and shudders over and will not listen to the last half nor allow me to print any part of it did he publish it at last yes anonymously and from that final compromise we can see that his mustering out had come too late he could not rouse himself indeed from the inertia with which old age and long habits of easy living had fortified the successful half of his double personality tolstoy at eighty set out on a tragic pilgrimage to redeem in his own eyes a life that had been compromised by wealth and comfort but the poet in tolstoy had never slumbered nor slept it had kept the conflict conscious it had registered its protest not sporadically but every day day in day out by act and thought it had kept its right of way open mark twain had lived too fully the life of the world the average sensual man had engulfed the poet like an old imprisoned revolutionist it faced the gates of a freedom too long deferred what visions of revolt had thrilled it in earlier years how it had shaken its bars but now the sunlight was so sweet the run of a little sap along those palsied limbs on his seventieth birthday mark twain was dazzled by his liberty he was going to tell the world the truth the whole truth and a little more than the truth within a week he found that he no longer had the strength glance at mr paine's record in eighteen ninety nine we find him writing as follows to mr howells for several years i have been intending to stop writing for print as soon as i could afford it at last i can afford it and have put the pot-boiler pen away what i have been wanting is a chance to write a book without reserves a book which should take account of no one's feelings and no one's prejudices opinions beliefs hopes illusions delusions a book which should say my say right out of my heart in the plainest language and without a limitation of any sort 
I judged that that would be an unimaginable luxury, heaven on earth. It is under way now, and it is a luxury, an intellectual drunk. The book was The Mysterious Stranger. While he was under the spell of composing it, that sulfurous little fairy tale seemed to him the fruition of his desire. But he was inhibited from publishing it, and this only poured oil upon the passion that possessed him. At once this craving reasserted itself with tenfold intensity. He tinkered incessantly at what is man. He wrote it and rewrote it. He read it to his visitors. He told his friends about it. Eventually he published this, but the fact that he felt he was obliged to do so anonymously fanned his insatiable desire still more. Something more personal he must write now. He fixed his mind on that with a consuming intensity. To express himself was no longer a mere artistic impulse. It had become a categorical imperative, a path out of what was for him a life of sin. With all my practice, he writes humorously in one of his letters, I realize that in a sudden emergency I am but a poor, clumsy liar. There is nothing humorous, however, in that refusal of his to continue Tom Sawyer's story into later life, because he would only lie like all the other one-horse men in literature and the reader would conceive a hearty contempt for him. There he expressed all the anguish of his own soul. To tell the truth now, what truth? Any and every kind of truth, anything that would hurt him to tell and by so doing purge him. We recall how he had adored the frankness of Robert Ingersoll, how he had kept urging his brother Orion to write an autobiography that would spare nobody's feelings and would let all the cats out of the bag. Simply tell your story to yourself, laying all hideousness utterly bare, reserving nothing, he had told him. Let Orion do it. We can almost hear him whispering to himself, and Orion had done it. It wrung my heart, wrote Mr. Howells of that astounding manuscript, and I felt haggard after I had finished it. The writer's soul is laid bare. It is shocking. Mark Twain had found a vicarious satisfaction in that. He, who at the same moment was himself attempting to write an absolutely faithful autobiography, as Mr. Paine tells us, a document in which his deeds and misdeeds, even his moods and inmost thoughts should be truly set down. To write such a book now had become the ruling desire of his life. He had developed what Mr. Paine calls a passion for biography, and especially for autobiography, diaries, letters, and such intimate human history, for confessions, in a word. He longed now not to reform the world, but to redeem himself. Writing for print he speaks of that as of something unthinkable. A man who writes for print, he seems to say, this man who spoke for free speech as the privilege of the grave, becomes a liar in the mere act. He is afraid of the public, but he is more afraid now of himself, whom he cannot trust. He wishes to write not to read, 
and plans a series of letters to his friends that are not going to be mailed. You can talk with a quite unallowable frankness and freedom, he tells himself in a little note which Mr. Paine has published, because you are not going to send the letter. When you are on fire with theology, you'll not write it to Rogers, who wouldn't be an inspiration. You'll write it to Twitchell, because it will make him writhe and squirm and break the furniture. When you are on fire with a good thing that's indecent, you won't waste it on Twitchell. You'll save it for Howells, who will love it. As he will never see it, you can make it really indecenter than he could stand, and so no harm is done, yet a vast advantage is gained. Was ever a more terrible flood piled up against the sluice gates of a human soul? At last the gates open, safely seated behind a proviso that it is not to be published until he has been dead a century, Mark Twain begins his autobiography. In the first flush he imagines that he is doing what he has longed to do. Work, he said to a young reporter, the passage is to be found in the collection of his speeches. I retired from work on my seventieth birthday. Since then I have been putting in merely twenty-six hours a day dictating my autobiography but it is not to be published in full until I am thoroughly dead. I have made it as caustic, fiendish, and devilish as possible. It will fill many volumes, and I shall continue writing it until the time comes for me to join the angels. It is going to be a terrible autobiography. It will make the hair of some folks curl, but it cannot be published until I am dead, and the persons mentioned in it and their children and grandchildren are dead. It is something awful. You see what he has in mind. For twenty years his daily reading has been Pepys and Saint-Simon and Casanova. He is going to have a spree, a debauch of absolutely reckless confession. He is going to tell things about himself. He is going to use all the bold, bad words that used to shock his wife. His wife. Perhaps he is even going to be realistic about her. Why not? Has he not already in his letters said two or three playful things about her? Not incompatible with his affection, but still decidedly wanting in filial respect? St. Andrew Carnegie and Uncle Joe Cannon, his affectionate old friend of the copyright campaign, are fair game anyway, and so are some of those neighbors in Hartford, and so are Howells and Rogers and Twitchell. He is going to exact his pound of flesh for every one of that long list of humiliations. But he is going to exact it like an Olympian. What is the use of being old if you can't rise to a certain impersonality, a certain universality, if you can't assume at last the prerogatives of the human soul, 
lost in its loneliness and its pathos upon this little orb that whirls amid the swimming shadows and enormous shapes of time and space if you can't expand and contract your eye like the ghost you are so soon to be if you can't bring home for once the harvest of all your pains and all your wisdom as for that tearing booming nineteenth the mightiest of all the centuries what a humbug it was so full of cruelties and meannesses and lying hypocrisies what fun he is going to have what magnificently wicked fun you see mark twain's intention he is going to write for his own redemption the great book that all the world is thirsting for the book it will gladly however impatiently wait a hundred years to read and what happens he found it says mr paine a pleasant lazy occupation which prepares us for the kind of throbbing truth we are going to get twenty-six installments of that autobiography were published before he died in the north american review they were carefully selected no doubt not to offend the brimstone was held in reserve but as for the quality of that brimstone can we not guess it in advance he confessed freely says mr paine that he lacked the courage even the actual ability to pen the words that would lay his soul bare one paragraph in fact that found its way into print among the diffuse and superficial impressions of the north american review gives us we may assume the measure of his general candor i have been dictating this autobiography of mine daily for three months i have thought of fifteen hundred or two thousand incidents in my life which i am ashamed of but i have not gotten one of them to consent to go on paper yet i think that that stock will still be complete and unimpaired when i finish these memoirs if i ever finish them i believe that if i should put in all or any of those incidents i should be sure to strike them out when i came to revise this book bernard shaw once described america as a nation of villagers well mark twain had become the village atheist the captain of his type the judge driscoll of a whole continent judge driscoll we remember could be a free thinker and still hold his place in society because he was the person of most consequence in the community and therefore could venture to go his own way and follow out his own notions mark twain had proved himself superlatively smart he was licensed to say his say what inhibited him now therefore even more than his habits of moral slavery was a sense uh, how can we doubt it a half unconscious sense that concerning life itself he had little of importance to communicate his struggle of conscience over the publication of what is man points it is true toward another conclusion but certainly the writing of his autobiography must have shown him that with all the will in the world 
and with the freedom of absolute privacy he was incapable of the grand utterance of the prophets and the confessors there was nothing to prevent him from publishing three thousand years among the microbes the design of which was apparently free from personalities if he had been sufficiently interested to finish it he thought of founding a school of philosophy at reading like that other school at concord but none of these impulses lasted his prodigious market value confirmed him at moments no doubt in thinking himself a nestor but something within this tragic old man must have told him that he was not really the sage the seer and that mankind could well exist without the discoveries and the judgments of that gregarious pilgrimage of his it is noble to be good he said during these later years but it is nobler to show others how to be good and less trouble which conveys in its cynicism a profound sense of his own emptiness he tempted the fates when he published what is man anonymously if that book had had a success of scandal his conscience might have pricked him on to publish more immature as his judgment was he had no precise knowledge of the value of his ideas but at least he knew that great ideas usually shock the public and that if his ideas were great they would probably have that gratifying effect fortunately or unfortunately the book was received says mr paine as a clever and even brilliant expose of philosophies which were no longer startlingly new and after that just that very generous public verdict for the book is in fact quite worthless except for the light it throws on mark twain he must have felt that he had no further call to adopt the unpopular role of mephistopheles with all the more passion however his balked fury the animus of the repressed satirist in him turned against the harsher aspects of that civilization which had tied his tongue automatically as we have seen from the incidents of the gorky dinner and the portsmouth conference and the war prayer restraining those impulses that were not supported by the sentiment of a safe majority he threw himself with his warm heart and his quick pulse into the defense of all that are desolate and oppressed the human race was behaving very badly says mr paine of the hour of his triumphant return to america in nineteen hundred unspeakable corruption was rampant in the city the boers were being oppressed in south africa the natives were being murdered in the philippines leopold of belgium was massacring and mutilating the blacks in the congo and the allied powers in the cause of christ were slaughtering the chinese the human race had always been behaving badly but mark twain was in a frame of mind to perceive it now was he the founder of the great school of muckrakers he at any rate the most sensitive the most humane of men rode forth to the encounter now the champion of all who like himself had been in bondage it is impossible to ignore this personal aspect of his passionate sympathy with suffering and weakness in any form whether in man or beast in these later years it was the spectacle of strength triumphing over weakness that alone aroused his passion or even save in his autobiographic and philosophic attempts induced him to write one remembers those pages in following the equator about the exploitation of the kanakas 
then there was his book about king leopold and the congo and the czar's soliloquy and a horse's tale written for mrs fiske's propaganda against bullfighting in spain the dreyfus case was an obsession with him finally among many other writings of a similar tendency there was his joan of arc in which he had summed up a lifetime's rage against the forces in society that array themselves against the aspiring spirit joan of arc has always been a favorite theme with old men old men who have dreamed of the heroic life perhaps without ever attaining it the sharp realism of anatole france's biography which so infuriated mark twain was if he had known it the prerogative of a veteran who equally as the defender of dreyfus the comrade of joannes and the volunteer of nineteen fourteen has proved that skepticism and courage are capable of a superb rapport mark twain had not been able to rise to that level and the sentimentality of his own study of joan of arc shows it in his animus against the judges of joan one perceives however a savage and despairing defense of the misprized poet the betrayed hero in himself the outstanding fact about this later effort of mark twain's is that his energy is concentrated almost exclusively in attacks of one kind or another his mind whether good or ill has become thoroughly destructive he is consumed by a will to attack a will to abolish a will to destroy sometimes he had written a few years earlier my feelings are so hot that i have to take the pen and put them out on paper to keep them from setting me afire inside he who had become definitely a pessimist we are told at forty-eight in the hour of his great prosperity was possessed now with a rage for destruction who can doubt that this was pathological he was so promiscuous in his attacks had he not as early as eighteen eighty one assailed even the postage rates had he not been thrown into a fury by an order from the post office department on the superscription of envelopes there were whole days one is told when he locked himself up in his rooms and refused to see his secretary when he was like a raging animal consumed with a blind and terrible passion of despair we can hear his leonine roars even in the gentle pages of his biographer mr paine tells how he turned upon him one day and said fiercely anybody that knows anything knows that there was not a single life that was ever lived that was worth living and again i have been thinking it out if i live two years more i will put an end to it all i will kill myself was that a pose as mr howells says was it a mere humorous fancy that plan for exterminating the human race by withdrawing all the oxygen from the earth for two minutes was it a mere impersonal sympathy for mankind that perpetual search for means of easement and alleviation that obsessed interest in christian science in therapeutics was it not all in that sound and healthy frame the index of a soul that was mortally sick mark twain's attack upon the failure of human life was merely a rationalization of the failure in himself 
and this failure was the failure of the artist in him glance back thirty years hear what he writes to mr howells from italy in eighteen seventy eight i wish i could give those sharp satires on european life which you mention but of course a man can't write successful satire except he be in a calm judicial good humor whereas i hate travel and i hate hotels and i hate the opera and i hate the old masters in truth i don't ever seem to be in a good enough humor with anything to satirize it no i want to stand up before it and curse it and foam at the mouth or take a club and pound it to rags and pulp i have got in two or three chapters about wagner's operas and managed to do it without showing temper but the strain of another such effort would burst me that is what had become of the satirist that is what had become of the artist thirty years before he the unconscious sycophant of the crass materialism of the gilded age who had in the innocence abroad poured ignorant scorn upon so many of the sublime creations of the human spirit he the playboy the comrade and emulator of magnates and wire-pullers had begun even then to pay with an impotent fury for having transgressed his own instincts unawares a born artist ridiculing art a born artist hating art a born artist destroying art there we have the natural evolution of a man who in the end wishes to destroy himself and the world how angrily suspicious he is even this early of all aesthetic pretensions what a fierce grudge he has against those who lay claim to a certain affection for the perverse mysteries of high art they want to get into the dress circle he says by a lie that's what they're after the slave ship for all ruskin's fine phrases reminds him of a cat having a fit in a platter of tomatoes etc etc here we have the familiar figure of the peasant who imagines a woman must be a prostitute because she wears a low-cut dress but the peasant spits on the ground and walks on mark twain cannot take it so lightly that low-cut dress is a red rag to him he foams and stamps wherever he sees it is it not evident that he is the prey of some appalling repression it is not in the nature of man to desire a club so that he can pound works of art into rags and pulp unless they are the symbols of something his whole soul unconsciously desires to create and has been prevented from creating do we ask then why mark twain detested novels it was because he had been able to produce only one himself and that a failure we can understand now that intense will of to believe in the creative life which mark twain revealed in his later writings man originates nothing not even a thought shakespeare could not create he was a machine and machines do not create 
is it possible to mistake the animus in that mark twain was an ardent baconian in that faith he said i find comfort solace peace and never-failing joy i will say nothing of the complete lack of intuition concerning the psychology of the artist revealed in his pamphlet is shakespeare dead it is astonishing that any writer could have composed this that any one but a retired businessman or a lawyer infatuated with rationalization could have so misapprehended the nature and the processes of the poetic mind but mark twain does not write like a credulous businessman indulging his hobby he does not even write like a lawyer feverishly checking off the proofs of that intoxicating evidence he is defiant he exults in the triumph of his own certitude he stamps on shakespeare he insults him he delights in pouring vulgar scorn upon that ingenuous bust in stratford church with its deep 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 subtle 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 expression of a bladder and why because the evidence permits him to believe that shakespeare was an ignorant yokel bacon was the man bacon knew everything bacon was a lawyer see what macaulay says macaulay heaven bless us all therefore bacon wrote the plays is this mark twain speaking the author of the sublime illiteracies of huckleberry finn who had been himself most the artist when he was least the sophisticated citizen it is and he is speaking in character he who asserted that man is a chameleon and is nothing but what his training makes him had long lost the intuition of the poet and believed perforce that without bacon's training those plays could not have been written but would he have stamped with such a savage joy upon that yokel shakespeare if the fact as he imagined that man creates nothing had not had for him a tragic however unconscious significance one can hardly doubt that when one considers that mark twain was never able to follow the bacon ciphers when one considers the emotional prepossession revealed in his own statement that he accepted those ciphers mainly on faith how simple it becomes now the unraveling of that mournful philosophy of his that drab mass of crude speculation of which he said so confidently that it was like the sky you can't break through anywhere how much it meant to him the thought that man is a mere machine an irresponsible puppet entitled to no demerit for what he has failed to do dahomey he says somewhere could not find an edison out in dahomey an edison could not find himself out broadly speaking genius is not born with sight but blind and it is not itself that opens its eyes but the subtle influences of a myriad of stimulating exterior circumstances what a comment side by side with mark twain's life upon mr howells's statement that the world in which he came into his intellectual consciousness was large and free and safe 
large for the satirist, with Mrs. Clemens, free with Mr. Howells himself, and safe with H. H. Rogers. If Shakespeare had been born and bred on a barren and unvisited rock in the ocean, his mighty intellect would have had no outside material to work with, and could have invented none, and no outside influences, teachings, moldings, persuasions, inspirations of a valuable sort, and could have invented none, and so Shakespeare would have produced nothing. In Turkey he would have produced something, something up to the highest limit of Turkish influences, associations, and training. In France he would have produced something better, something up to the highest limit of the French influences and training. Mark Twain fails to mention what would have happened to Shakespeare if he had been born in America. He merely adds, but it is enough, you and I are but sewing machines. We must turn out what we can. We must do our endeavor and care nothing at all when the unthinking reproach us for not turning out goblins. There we have his half-conscious verdict on the destiny of the artist in a society as large and free and safe as that of the Gilded Age. Yes, the tragic thing about an environment as coercive as ours is that we are obliged to endow it with the majesty of destiny itself in order to save our own faces. We dwell on the conditions that hamper us, destroy us, we embrace them with an amour fati, to escape from the contemplation of our own destruction. Outside influences, outside circumstances, wind the man and regulate him. Left to himself, he wouldn't get regulated at all, and the sort of time he would keep would not be valuable. There is the complete philosophy of the moral slave, who not only has no autonomy, but wishes to have none, who, in fact, finds all his comfort in having none, and delights in denying the possibility of independence just because he does not possess it himself. The pragmatists have escaped this net in their own interestingly temperamental fashion, like flying fish, by jumping over it. It remains nevertheless the characteristic philosophy of Americans who have a deep emotional stake in the human situation, and one might almost say that it honors Mark Twain. We only perceive, we are only mortified by the slavery of men, when nature has endowed us with the true hunger and thirst for freedom. Who can doubt, indeed, that it was the very greatness of his potential force the strength of his instinctive preferences that confirmed in Mark Twain his inborn Calvinistic will to despise human nature, that fixed in him the obsession of the miscarriage of the human spirit. If the great artist is the freest man, if the true creative life is in fact the embodiment of free will, 
then it is only he that is born for greatness who can feel as mark twain felt that the universe is leagued against him the common man has no sense of having surrendered his will he regards it as a mere pretension of the philosophers that man has a will to surrender he eats drinks and continues to be merry or morose regardless of his moral destiny to possess no principle of growth no spiritual backbone is indeed his greatest advantage in a world where success is the reward of accommodation it is nothing to him that man is a chameleon who by the law of his nature takes the color of his place of resort it is nothing to him whether or not as mark twain said the first command the deity issued to a human being on this planet was be weak be water be characterless be cheaply persuadable knowing that adam would never be able to disobey it is nothing to him or rather it is much for it is by this means that he wins his worldly prestige how well for that matter it served the prevailing self in mark twain from the cradle to the grave during all his waking hours the human being is under training it is his human environment which influences his mind and his feelings furnishes him his ideals and sets him on his road and keeps him in it if he leave that road he will find himself shunned by the people whom he most loves and esteems and whose approval he most values the influences about him create his preferences his aversions his politics his tastes his morals his religion he creates none of these things for himself poor mark twain that is the way of common flesh but only the great spirit so fully apprehends the tragedy of it nothing consequently could be more pathetic than the picture mark twain draws in what is man and in his later memoranda of the human mind it is really his own mind he is describing and one cannot imagine anything more unlike the mind of the mature artist which is all of a single flood all poise all natural control you cannot keep your mind from wandering if it wants to it is master not you the mind carries on thought on its own hook we are automatic machines which act unconsciously from morning till sleeping time all day long all day long our machinery is doing things from habit and instinct and without requiring any help or attention from our poor little seven by nine thinking apparatus man has habits and his habits will act before his thinking apparatus can get a chance to exert its powers mark twain cannot even conceive of the individual reacting as the mature man 
as the artist preeminently does upon his instinctive life and controlling it for his own ends he shows us the works of his mental machine racing along from subject to subject a drifting panorama of ever-changing ever-dissolving views manufactured by my mind without any help from me why it would take me two hours to merely name the multitude of things my mind tallied off and photographed in fifteen minutes the mind man has no control over it it does as it pleases it will take up a subject in spite of him it will stick to it in spite of him it will throw it aside in spite of him it is entirely independent of him does he call himself a machine he might better have said a merry-go-round without the rhythm of a merry-go-round mark twain reveals himself in old age as a prey to all manner of tumbling chaotic obsessions his mind rings with rhymes he cannot banish sticks and stumbles over chess problems he has no desire to solve it wouldn't listen it played right along it wore me out and i got up haggard and wretched in the morning a swarming mass of dissociated fragments of personality an utterly disintegrated spirit a spirit that has lost that has never possessed the principle of its own growth always in these speculations however we find two major personalities at war with each other one is the refractory self that wants to publish the book regardless of consequences the other is the insolent absolute monarch inside of a man who is the man's master and who forbids it the eternal conflict of huckleberry finn and aunt polly playing itself out to the end in the theatre of mark twain's soul the interpretation of dreams is a very perilous enterprise contemporary psychology hardly permits us to venture into it with absolute assurance and yet we feel that without doubt our unconscious selves express through this distorting medium their hidden desires and fears i generally enjoy my dreams mark twain once told mr paine but not those three and they are the ones i have oftenest he wrote out these three recurrent dreams in a memorandum one of them is long and to me at least without obvious significance but one cannot fail to see in the other two a singular corroboration of the view of mark twain's life that has been unfolded in these pages there is never a month passes he wrote that i do not dream of being in reduced circumstances and obliged to go back to the river to earn a living it is never a pleasant dream either i love to think about those days but there's always something sickening about the thought that i have been obliged to go back to them 
and usually in my dream I am just about to start into a black shadow without being able to tell whether it is Selma Bluff or Hat Island or only a black wall of night. Another dream that I have of that kind is being compelled to go back to the lecture platform. I hate that dream worse than the other. In it I am always getting up before an audience with nothing to say, trying to be funny, trying to make the audience laugh, realizing that I am only making silly jokes. Then the audience realizes it, and pretty soon they commence to get up and leave. That dream always ends by my standing there in the semi-darkness talking to an empty house. I leave my readers to expound these dreams according to the formulas that please them best. I wish to note only two or three points. Mark Twain is obsessed with the idea of going back to the river. I love to think about those days. But there is something sickening in the thought of returning to them, too, and that is because of the black shadow, the black wall of night, into which he, the pilot, sees himself inevitably steering. That is a precise image of his life. The second dream is its natural complement. On the lecture platform his prevailing self had reveled in its triumphs, and, he says, I hate that dream worse than the other. Had he ever wished to be a humorist? He is always trying to make the audience laugh. The horror of it is that he has lost in his nightmare the approval for which he had made his great surrender. Turn again to the last pages in Mr. Paine's biography, to the moment when he lay breathing out his life in the cabin of that little Bermuda packet. Two dreams beset him in his momentary slumber, one of a play in which the title role of the general manager was always unfilled. He spoke of this now and then when it had passed, and it seemed to amuse him. The other was a discomfort. A college assembly was attempting to confer upon him some degree which he did not want. Once, half aroused, he looked at me searchingly and asked, Isn't there something I can resign and be out of all this? They keep trying to confer that degree upon me, and I don't want it. Then, realizing, he said, I am like a bird in a cage, always expecting to get out and always beaten back by the wires. No, Mark Twain's seventieth birthday had not released him. It would have had to release him from himself. It cut away the cords that bound him, but the tree was not flexible any more. It was old and rigid, fixed for good and all, and it could not redress the balance. In one pathetic excess alone the artist blossomed, that costume of white flannels, the temerity of which so shocked Mr. Howells in Washington. I should like, said Mark Twain, to dress in a loose and flowing costume made all of silks and velvets, 
resplendent with stunning dyes. So would every man I have ever known, but none of us dares to venture it. There speaks the born artist, the starved artist who for forty years has had to pretend that he was a businessman, the born artist who has always wanted to be original in his dress and has had to submit to a feverish censorship even over his neckties, the artist who, longing to look like an orchid, has the courage at last and at least to emulate the modest lily. And so we see Mark Twain with his dry and dusty heart washing about on a forlorn sea of banquets and speech-making. The saddest, the most ironical figure in all the history of this western continent, the king, the conquering hero, the darling of the masses, praised and adored by all, he is unable even to reach the cynic's paradise, that vitriolic sphere which has, after all, a serenity of its own. The playboy to the end, divided between rage and pity, cheerful in his self-contempt, an illusionist in the midst of his disillusion, he is the symbol of the creative life in a country where, by the goodness of God, we have those three unspeakably precious things, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, and the prudence never to practice either of them. He is the typical American, people have said. Let heaven draw its own conclusions. As for ourselves, we are permitted to think otherwise. He was the supreme victim of an epoch in American history, an epoch that has closed. Has the American writer of today the same excuse for missing his vocation? He must be very dogmatic or unimaginative, says John Ingleton, with a prophetic note that has ceased to be prophetic, who would affirm that man will never weary of the whole system of things which reigns at present. We never know how near we are to the end of any phase of our experience, and often when its seeming stability begins to pall upon us, it is a sign that things are about to take a new turn. Read, writers of America, the driven, disenchanted, anxious faces of your sensitive countrymen. Remember the splendid parts your confreres have played in the human drama of other times and other peoples, and ask yourselves whether the hour has not come to put away childish things and walk the stage as poets do. End of chapter 11, mustered out, and end of the ordeal of Mark Twain by Van Wyck Brooks. Read by John Greenman.